Cats, welcome back to your favourite classical music pod. Indeed, the classical music pod. In today's episode, we've got a 16th century nun. A chat with violin superstar Jennifer Pike. Sam gorges himself on Gallic viola music. And Dame Helen Mirren's been hacked. That was the festive sound of a booze-drenched street party in the Czech capital, Prague. The country has recorded just 350 COVID-related deaths, and so imbued with the spirit of victory, several thousand Prazans took to the cobbled streets for what they called a symbolic farewell. A 500-metre-long table was set up on the 14th-century Charles Bridge for merry-making locals to feast upon. Songs were sung, friendships were sealed, and as the setting sun wrapped the Czech revellers in its restorative glow, each rediscovered the perfection that is live music enjoyed amongst company. Which, rather grandiloquently, brings us to the main story of the week, Oliver Dowden's hotly anticipated art sector bailout. Tim, can you break down the announcement for us? Yes. On Sunday night, the FT broke the news that a £1.57 billion rescue package is being deployed for the thousands of UK performing organisations, galleries, theatres, music venues and museums that are on the verge of collapse. That includes 880 million of grants and 270 million of repayable loans, the latter of which is likely to go to organisations like West End Theatres that don't usually get public subsidy. There's also 100 million of targeted support for national museums and heritage bodies, 120 million to restart cultural building projects put on pause in March and £188 million for organisations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. In addition to this £1.57 billion, it was announced today, Tuesday, that a separate £33 million has been raised by Arts Council England, specifically for organisations in its national portfolio that face immediate financial disaster before September. Excellent. And will it be Arts Council England's job to divvy up this pool of money? Yes, it will be. With pleasure, I'm sure, seeing as this is over seven times the amount they were able to hand out at the start of the crisis. But before we break out the Czech beer, there are a couple of things we need to remember. There are still thousands of freelancers who won't have income until the arts world fully gets back to business. And until the government eases restrictions on theatres and venues, we've got no idea when that will be. Mm. 
Also, once the furlough scheme ends, bailed out organisations still might not have the money to pay staff. Yes. Also, this money might not come in time for theatres like Southampton's Nuffield, which went into administration last week. Yeah, exactly. So the onus is now on Arts Council England to work as fast as possible. There are a couple of political things to consider as well. Firstly, there's no hint of a bailout for other sectors like aviation or gyms, which is Mm. essentially an acknowledgement from the government that the arts are both uniquely important and uniquely fragile. Yeah. So there was no chance of a V-shaped recovery from such a delicately balanced industry, basically. Secondly... I wonder whether this is a tacit admission that pretty debilitating restrictions on indoor public performance will remain in place for a while. If Boris is looking at what's happening over in the southern states of America or Melbourne or Israel, and he's terrified of making the same mistakes. So whilst the weather is good and outdoor performance spaces are viable, it's easy to forget that come November, we're still going to be facing the same possibly insurmountable challenges around distancing on stage in in cramped hallways and dressing rooms and queuing for toilets and all the rest of it. Mm. I guess it depends now on Dowden fulfilling the second part of his duties as culture minister, i.e. lobbying the government to put sensible but not over-restrictive safety guidelines in place for indoor performances. And of course that decision is going to be informed by the results of testing that is taking place at Port and Down with choristers from our old stomping ground of Salisbury Cathedral. Best of luck to those guys and the work they're doing there. Yes, so not quite the panacea we're all dreaming of, but plenty to be positive about. And personally, I think it's worth taking a moment to thank Dowden for feeding the bards. I would like to put in an early request for this week's newsbeat. May we please have a samba? A first glimpse of the 2020 prom season has been unveiled by the BBC. Six weeks of archive broadcasts will be followed by two weeks of live concerts from the Royal Albert Hall. The part-salvaged, part-brand-new season will include performances from Sheku and Isita Kana-Mason, Gold Panda, Anushka Shankar and Golda Schultz, as well as new commissions from Thomas Adders, Richard Ayres and Andrea Torodi. An opera-singing doctor who returned to work for the NHS during the Covid peak is to appear in London's first post-lockdown opera. Alex Aldrin, who went viral in a BBC video, linked in the description below, will star in Hampstead Garden Opera's production of Holst's Savitri. We're feeling particularly smug because we have tickets to this, so stay tuned for a review. Incidentally, Madrid's Teatro Real have already staged their first indoor opera, a production of Verdi's La Traviata, with a 50% audience, 100% of whom were tested before entering the building. Masks were also mandatory, which must have felt strangely appropriate for an opera that features a masquerade scene. In an interview with Swiss-German newspaper Aargau Zeitung, Polish tenor Piotr Bechtsala has said it is ridiculous that he can no longer wear blackface for performances of Otello. If Piotr is listening, in the description below we've linked an article by the excellent Olivia Giovetti explaining why it isn't ridiculous at all. An online Israel Philharmonic concert hosted by Dame Helen Mirren has been disrupted by cyber attackers. 
13,000 pre-registered concertgoers hoping to log in to the Medici TV platform had their access mysteriously blocked, although the concert is now available at the link in the description below. And finally, we have two very exciting job announcements. The wonderful conductor Roderick Cox, who spoke so eloquently in our last podcast about the African-American conducting experience, is to give his Metropolitan Opera debut in Rossini's Barber of Seville in March 2021. Congratulations, Roderick. And secondly, butter-voiced ITN anchor Sir Trevor MacDonald has been announced as Classic FM's latest recruit. He joins Moira Stewart and John Humphreys in the long list of ex-broadcasters to be poached from primetime 90s television. In self-isolation, there's no conversation. My one consolation, model transportation. I have a thing where I make models of buses. Even if they appear to be coming to a brief cessation, I think we can all agree that we've been living through some pretty unusual circumstances, Timbo. I don't think you'd get too many people making the case that 2020 has been normal, no. Well, today we're going to look at a piece, the compositional circumstances of which were actually really common at the time, but in terms of what Western music has chosen to preserve, they're a bit of an oddity. Let's talk about nuns. Let's talk about nuns, baby. There'll be no nunnery punnery, though. No, you're right. That's a terrible habit to get into. Until this week, I hadn't realised the crucial role convents played in the musical life of the Italian Renaissance. Thanks to the musicologist Dr Laurie Strass, I've learned that unlike at the Sistine Chapel, which we know had top-level music for the time, but which was only accessible to noblemen, Music at convents was heard by a much greater proportion of the public. The donations received off the back of these celestial sirens were important in keeping the places afloat. Kind of like a tourist attraction. Exactly like that. These nuns sang all 150 psalms a week, singing more than they slept. Marino Sanudo even wrote a guide on which ones to visit in Rome, a sort of Michelin star for nuns. Hey, you, you, where's your abbess? What is this pile of sh- Ave Maria? So did that make the convents competitive then? Yes, and there were talent scouts offering scholarships to young women who could sing. Disappointing stat attack, young women could get choral scholarships to sing in 16th century Italy. Women are not able to apply for alto choral scholarships at New College Oxford in Britain in 2020. Miserable. Who was joining these convents? Lots of people were, because of a lack of good single men. Uh, it was ever thus. Well, there was a particular dearth of eligible bachelors in the noble classes of Renaissance Italy, as only the eldest sons could inherit. As a result, lots of noble women went into convents, even though it was expensive without a scholarship, because these were places where talented women could pursue the arts and education free from a non-profitable marriage. This was the case for the suspected composer of today's piece, Leonora d'Este. Suspected composer? More on this soon. D'Este was a Ferrarese noblewoman. <laughs> the daughter of Lucretia Borgia, who was arguably the most powerful woman in Renaissance Italy, she entered the Corpus Domini Monastery aged eight and became the abbess aged 18. Crikey. 
According to the accounts of her contemporaries, Deste was a superb musician. Here is her Obiate Christi Confesso, a free motet, not written around a pre-existing piece of chant, for five female voices, three sopranos and two altos. On this lovely recording by Musica Secreta, there's also a viol playing the lowest part. Beautiful. Sam, you said at the beginning that the circumstances of Obiate's composition have shaped the piece we hear. What did you mean by that? Well, most structurally significant is the voicing. She's writing for nuns, so there's no tenor and no bass. All of the voices have to fit in basically two octaves, the G below middle C to the G two octaves higher than that. So that must make the five parts pretty congested. It does. A lot of the imitation is very dense sometimes three parts circling the same note in the same octave, which really makes it jump out to me, anyway. Listen out for the da-da-da here. Another oddity is that any part could be the lowest note in a chord, which must feel very strange to sing. Hmm, yes. So, why did you say the piece is probably by Deste? Well, in an edition of 42 motets published by Venetian printer Girolamo Scotto in 1543, of which Obiate is a part, the composer is listed as anonymous. I've never heard of anonymous. (laughs) There were many reasons someone might not want to put their name on a piece of music. They could be noble. Like that jazzy polyphonist Gesualdo, who's a prince. Exactly. Or they could be a woman or hold a public office. Like a nun. Like a nun. So Deste is triply disqualified. Once, twice, three times an uncredited lady. Dr Laurie Strass has written a very compelling article about the provenance of these motets. There is a link in the description below if you want to follow up on her research. Does it matter if this piece is by her? Well, not for me. Crucially, we've got the music. It's really good. Dissonant, challenging stuff to perform and to listen to. Any skilled choir of women's voices should be checking it out. But also, whoever wrote it, and it seems pretty likely it's Deste, this music tells us that a very talented composer, expert in the most challenging form of the day, the free imitation motet, is writing for nuns, writing for women's voices. That is a challenge to the established musical canon narrative of serious music being written by men for men. This may be music by a woman, but it is certainly music for women. And so it reminds us that the sound of the Renaissance is women's voices. If this kind of ensemble is rare amongst the music that we have preserved, that is because of the biases of the preservers, not the composers of the time. Obeate Christi Confessor could be a much more representative sample of the period than the music of the Sistine Chapel. But can we hear this nun music today? You can, both from Musica Secreta and others like Stile Antico, who have been performing some lately as part of their Breaking the Habit programme. 
A big thank you goes to their hirsute baritone Will Dawes, who set me onto this particular avenue of thinking. He's the man from whom I learnt my Wookiee impression, as well as many other similarly helpful tidbits. Speaking of which... Composer Fact File, Leonora de Este. Born 1515, Ferrara, Italy. Her father was the Duke of Ferrara, Alfonso d'Este. Her mother was Alfonso's second wife, Lucrezia Borgia, which made one of her grandparents a pope. Her mother died when she was four, and so she was raised in the Corpus Domini Monastery. Joining the convent aged eight allowed her to pursue music. Legend has it that if the abbess of Corpus Domini saw any of the girls flagging during the nighttime chanting of matins, she would revive them with dried cherries and raisins that she kept in a little bag by her side. Leonora's keyboards were surreptitiously gifted to her monastery by her family, as she was not allowed to own instruments. She inspired the famed theorist Zarlino to write his last great treatise. Zarlino wrote to her, By dedicating my small work to you, I could show your extraordinary qualities. Sam, have you been listening to anything new or noteworthy in these long summer evenings? A CD that ticks both of those boxes is Silhouettes, released on Channel Records last week. On it we hear violist Dana Zemstov and pianist Anna Fedorova. And it jumped out at me because it's got the Rebecca Clark viola sonata on it. Every time I hear it, my opinion of it goes up. For me, it's truly one of the best 20th century string pieces. If you want to hear us rant at length about its wondrousness, then check out episode 9 of series 1, where we run it through the analysis mill. But do Dana and Anna look after our beloved piece? Dana and Anna, or Danana, absolutely do. The disc opens with the Clark although naughty advertising executives have put Debussy and Mio much more prominently on the front. And that riggy-diggy-dum opening just sets out the stall for the disc. It's such a strong opening to a piece, such a strong opening to a CD of viola music. If there was any question lingering about the viola as a solo instrument, they are dispelled in the first two bars. The Dananana partnership have a very compelling reading of the piece on this disc, drawing you in through a more inward-looking first subject and then rising to moments of real strength when they need to. I think it's my new favourite recording of this piece. Here it feels like a concerto, like a major offering. Fantastic. Tell us more about Dana and Anna, please. Well, they're both relatively young. Dana is 27 and was born in Mexico City, with much of her study coming in the Netherlands. And Anna, 30, was born in Kiev. 
both play with the maturity of people who've been on the concert platform a long time, though. And that must be in part because they both have. Both were identified early as stars of the future and are experienced soloists. Bonus fact, both are the daughters of parents who play their instruments. So Dana's parents are both professional viola players and Anna's parents are pianists. It must be noisy in their houses growing up, a la Canna Mason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Other than Clark, what can we hear on the disc? It's a Frankish low country smorgasbord. Mio's sonata for viola and piano, George Enescu's concert piece for viola, and some Debussy transcriptions of piano solo works, which include Claire de Noon. They have a little added viola part on this disc. Enescu isn't French. In fact, he's Romanian, but studied and worked in France all his adult life, so he gets to join the club. No, I think that's only fair. I enjoyed the Mio. It's soft-edged neoclassicism, like Stravinsky that's been sanded down. It's chirpy and flowing, occasionally humorous. The piano gets a good chunk of the important material, and you can really feel the strength of their musical partnership in action. Danana give a very pleasing reading of this piece that's going to interest viola enthusiasts and possibly even the casual music fan, the Enescu falls into a similar category, but comes in a shorter bite-sized chunk, so maybe a good place to start for those not familiar with this period, or this lineup. It scurries through different moods and tempi, sort of foraging around in the musical back alleys of Paris, searching for something elusive. It's very colourful and evocative, a piece I didn't know before, but one I've really enjoyed getting to hear. And what about the Arnie Werkman that's on the disc? I don't know if uh, I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't either. Uh, well, it's it's great they've got a living composer on the disc. Werkman was born in The Hague in 1960, and in the press photos I've seen of him, he gives off the air of being a man who knows quite a lot about antiques, or it could be a civil servant with an unexpected hobby. <laughs> Is that your way of saying there isn't much information available on him? Not not that I could find, no. <laughs> but the music. Tell me about the music. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it doesn't do it for me. Sorry. Uh, I believe in these two performers and think they'll have given it the best airing that this piece is likely to get. I just found the workman a bit, pardon the pun, workmanly. Quaver streams keep coming at you like a sort of water main that's burst. There's no shape or rest. And I couldn't plot an emotional trajectory for the listener. I'm sure his fans will enjoy this and it'll be a real treat for them because the performance is excellent and it's recorded superbly, but for more general listeners, it might not be the one. Unlike the Debussy transcriptions, which I'm sure will be many people's way in and show off some gorgeous high viola harmonics that I didn't even know existed, the pick of these is, for me, the first, La Plus Que Long. Pop that on and you don't even need to pour the glass of red wine. You already feel like it's last orders at some portside bar. Stars are in the air and garlic mushrooms are on your breath. Oh, that does sound yum. <laughs> Overall, it's a really super disc. Hopefully the start of a long musical partnership for these two and a really outstanding recording of the Rebecca Clark. Very much worth a go then. So that's released on Channel Records and available on all the usual streaming platforms. Also, I should say, check out John Rutter's re-release of Stanford and Howl's Remembered. That's a newly remastered and extended two-CD set of the Cambridge Singers 1992 recording, 
which is released on the 17th of this month, July. I'm told it also includes 20 minutes of previously unreleased material, if you're into that kind of thing. Also, the London-based Epiphany Consort have just released a new CD of choral works by friend of the pod and all-round talented chap, Wayne Park, with former housemate of the pod and everybody's favourite counter-extremism policy advisor, Milo Comerford, singing bass. Personal chat. Personal chat. Personal chat. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. You got to pick a pocket or two. The Priest March from Mozart's The Magic Flute, written in 1791. The Canadian National Anthem, O Canada, written by Calixe Lavalle in 1880. Verkauf es neet gen den Tag, from Wagner's Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg, written in 1867. the Canadian National Anthem. You got to pick a pocket or two. A short while ago, I was lucky enough to speak to the violinist Jennifer Pike about, amongst other things, her new disc of music by Elgar and Vaughan Williams. It was fantastic to speak to her. She was kind enough to take me under the bonnet of a couple of the pieces on the CD, as well as humour me with some slightly silly questions towards the end. So enjoy. Yeah, I can hear you great. That is perfect. Okay. I'm I'm at, okay. I'm all set now from my end, but no um. You take your time. Okay. Oh, well, that's great. In that case, I think I'll just get a seat, get my coffee, and... Oh, you got your okay. coffee. Ah, oh, I should have got a coffee. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. Coffee envy. <laughs> How, where, where are you at the moment? Are you, are you based... Where are you based? I'm based in south, uh, southeast London, so and I've been for about three months now. Ah. Um. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm not that far from you, I'm because I'm in Brixton at the moment, so... Close-ish to you, I guess. Yeah. Southeast. Yeah. And and it's a it's a very small world, getting smaller every day, isn't it? Oh yeah. My oh my god! Don't tell me about. It. So that that's where you've been for the whole of the lockdown, as it were, in South yes, Southeast. It is. So it's it's been a long time. It, it's strange being in a in a huge city and and actually being in isolation, as you know, as of course, yeah, everyone else is uh, experiencing these similar things. It's, it kind of com- compounds that um, that loneliness factor that it's a yeah. bit of a cliche that, you know, 
living in a city is one of the loneliest places to be but you know it really is at the <laughs> at the moment it, it, yeah, it is it's, oh my goodness it's, yeah it just exacerbates that that feeling that exactly we, yeah. we all grumble about <laughs> yes yeah. perhaps for the benefit of our listeners who who may not know about you who you are you mentioned that you grew up in Stockport um, and then you went to Cheetahs, didn't you, up in Manchester? And uh, could you That's... take take me take me through your your journey from Stockport to Southeast London quickly? <laughs> yes, in a nutshell. Um, well, basically, I well, I grew up in 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 a you know kind of a friendly, very down to earth uh, place where I went to my local um, comprehensive, and then I went to music school, um, yeah. and I just. Uh, felt it be a very exciting experience to be surrounded by other music students and it was but um I then I didn't quite feel that was enough so so I I, I escaped Manchester uh, miss it still um a lot I miss the north but I do I do love being uh, being here in London and went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama yeah um yeah and then you and did then... your BBC Youngies or you did was it you Hedy Menu in competition first that's right. Yeah, so that was back in two thousand and two. Um, and yes, you're right. The menuing competition first in in early in the year, and then uh, later that year was yeah. the final of BBC um, Young Musician. So that was yeah, uh, interesting journey. Very helpful. Very 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 helpful. Yeah. Competition. You were twelve, weren't you, when you won BBC Young Musician? Which yes, that's right. You've spoken a few times about before and I mean obviously that's a very young age to be thrust into the limelight all of a sudden I, I wondered if you'd ever do you think do you, do you ever wish you'd had a little more time before you were thrust into said limelight I mean that that's something that actually in fact you, yeah. you Hudi Menuhin is something that he slightly struggled with I think himself because he was a young kind of prodigy mm. in the same way it, it did you feel that Oh, I didn't. I don't want to make you feel bad by saying this, but it's it's actually it's it's that sort of um, thing that follows uh, follows often follows prodigies around. Is that is that is the kind of so you were very young question, and that's yeah. what's difficult because you don't want to you, you want to say to people it's actually my music now. I'm not that person then. It was a fleeting moment, yeah. and and so that's what's hard about it. So in fact, I'm I'm now like a hamster in a wheel answering your question. Oh God! <laughs> because it's uh, you know I, that's really mean. I won't I won't put it quite like that. <laughs> but it, it that's the effect. <laughs> that's the effect it can have, um, which I have found as a challenge because uh, you know p- people need to have labels because there's so much information. I think in the world, and you you need to have everything sort of you know a couple of points about you know somebody, and I think just it's very exciting that somebody um, at a young age can do something uh, well, um, but you know lots of other young people do other things well, so it just so happened that I was on on the stage that evening, so uh, I like to sort of focus about you know after that time. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's of course. Happened. The, one of the things that I was interested to to, to talk about uh, is your because you're half Polish. Your mother's Polish. Yes. That's and right. presumably, I mean, I think I'm right in saying your parents met in Poland. Presumably, that had a big impact on your musical upbringing, that Polish her- heritage, or, or did it not? Definitely. Yes, it did. Um, it was just an interesting sound world. Uh, Polish music is very. Um, 
it's very uncompromising and very full of notes and it's so difficult at times for the, for the violin. But that's what I love about it and I, I do love uh, challenges. So I've, I've programmed lots of Polish music and um, Penderecki and Knapik and, um, and Goretzky has been a, a great influence because he taught my, my father composition and uh, yeah, and then my dad met my mum in Poland when he was studying with Goretzky. So it's, it's, a nice, um, it's a nice thing to reconnect with the roots, which I did a lot a couple of years ago. Um, definitely. Mm. So, yeah. Do you think that's had a strong influence on the way that you play? Um, I think so, yeah. And more, more so in the last couple of years because I've listened to more Polish music and I think something about the just the, the sheer challenge of grappling with a very difficult piece of music has sort of changed my opinions of it and... I love it very much, but it's quite intense. It's very, it's very, very intense. So I can't, I can't play it all the time on stage. So I, I try to, I try to mix up my programs mm. with you know lots of different uh, kinds of music. So people, there's something for everyone in there. Yeah. So noticeably more intense than another kind of or than works of other nations. Then. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I try not to. Yes, of course. Like I, I try not to to make it into a, an identity um, issue when I'm playing. I don't want yeah. to sort of say, this is, you know, I, I, I'm holding a banner for Poland. Not at all. It's it's more that I'm just passionate about the heritage and that there are lots of unknown works from Poland that, that are just only now coming to light, which is very exciting. Mm. Um, so, yeah, very intense, but it's more, you know, it's funny because my heritage is English and Polish, so... There's a very reserved, stiff upper lip English side of the family and a very tempestuous, uh, heart-on-sleeve Polish side, which often could clash, you yeah. know, is that, um, in, you know in, a, in a good way, um, not, too, not too bad. But, you know, it was interesting to me growing up seeing those two very different personalities. And I think the music does reflect that. What, what I love about you know Elgar and, and this disc of Vaughan Williams and Elgar, I love about the composers is that there is this intensity and passion, but it's it's behind a, a kind of steely resolve, which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then the Polish composers are sort of very much kind of you know straight straight out of the uh, you know it's just heart on sleep sleep immediately. So yeah, I think. Uh, in a nutshell, I'm trying to trying to make it in a nutshell, but uh, could do could do better. No, <laughs> no, that, that that's a good... three months in lockdown, forgotten how to speak. No, <laughs> tell me about it. No, that was that was wonderful in a nutshell. Thank you. You, you. you touched on your your new disc, of course, which is Elgar's Sonata in E Minor, Vaughan Williams' Sonata in A Minor, and then the original piano and violin version of Lark Ascending. I mean, I suppose, as I said just a minute ago, you did your disc of Polish music in 2019. And in a way, this is the mirror image of that in that it's your English side that you're focusing on here. First of all, do you, could you explain your relationship with Elgar? Because I've, I've read that you have a particularly profound relationship to his music. I, I may be wrong. But... Definitely, yes. No, you're absolutely right. I love that um, music because it's just the first music I 
played. So when I was growing up, it was, you know, the first notes of Elgar, really, um, that I heard. And I just fell in love with immediately. Something about the way he writes for the violin is just glorious. It's mm. so sonorous. And he obviously understood the violin very well. So it's it's like just sitting by the fire in in the Elgar violin sonata. It's very beautiful violin writing. Um, so, yeah, I grew up playing playing Elgar, and the violin concerto is just uh, obviously incredible. Um, but I say obviously incredible. Many people might not might not like how long it is. It's very long. That's the only thing about the Elgar concerto. Very, very long because it's, it's hard work. But there's every note in it says something to me. Um, so, yes, it's been a joy to discover more Elgar and more Vaughan Williams. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Loved the, it. The thing that I found uh, interesting about the Elgar Sonata is he described it as not having anything, vi- I'm in quotes here, violently chromatic or cubist, which felt a bit like um, a sort of pointed <laughs> response to the modernists of the time, I guess. You, you know, mm. Stravinsky's and Yashendo's. Mm. But it's not. He said that, but it's not a, a backwards-looking piece, is it? I mean, it, it's, it feels like it's fresh in in so many ways. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I I, I think it's very forward-looking. It's um, it's got these amazing spooky textures. It's like um, inviting the violinist to play slightly further away from the sounding point and these very ghostly passages, which I think is really modern. And, and, and also a lot, a lot of times in the first movement, especially, it sort of doesn't do anything for quite a long time. You know, it's sort of just, it's kind of, I think, forward looking to, you know, minimalism. It's just where, where you know, it's a repeated um repeated bars or measures you know going on and on and and it feels a bit like that and i love the the ghost stories uh of course of the spanish monks that were said to haunt the area around brinkwells where elgar was recuperating Mm. um and so i i feel that that sort of spirit in that sonata it's just it's haunting have you made it to brinkwells at all no i'd, I'd love to go um if i'm brave enough to uh, after all reading all the stories <laughs> i would love to yeah of yeah. course because what um yeah it's west sussex I, I haven't been either i'd love to go it sounds there was um i can't remember if it was wh reed the the lso leader who it was written for it might have been, or it could have been somebody else but uh, they, they'd gone out to visit him there and Elgar had come to meet them with a big axe in his hand and stood at the top of the hill with his moustache and and I, I just that image is sort of stuck in my head because that was around that time that he was writing it it just sounds that's quite scary thought yeah <laughs> Second work on the the disc is for Williams's Sonata in A Minor, which is um, a bit later than the other two. It's 1954, so and actually, it's apparently his last major instrumental work, which I didn't didn't realise. Yeah, it, I mean, it's not very well known either. I I think it's fair to say, or certainly I didn't know it, and 
there aren't that many recordings of it that I that I could find anyway. But did did you relish the opportunity <laughs> to sort of forge your own interpretation on that piece without being perhaps because it was something like the Lark Ascending or the Elgar, perhaps you're subconsciously influenced by a lot of the previous big name recordings that are out there but did you feel like there was a bit of a clean slate for you well i mean um with regard to the the sonata yeah i absolutely i found that as a hugely rewarding challenge because it was so fresh for me i mean i didn't really know it very well simply because i haven't performed it i haven't had the chance to to program it it's not really something that people want to hear so i, I knew of it Mm. But it was relatively new. It's only a few years that I've been looking at it. And I'm so glad that I really have come to understand it now. Well, I, I hopefully it will change in the next couple of years. But I hope people might be interested simply because it's a, it's an incredible masterpiece, really. It's just full of every emotion under the sun. It's It's full of actually pain. And I, I find that really quite sort of a shock it, Vaughan Williams is so his voice is so varied as a composer um, and so it's kind of that first movement it's performing it in concert is so exciting but it's exhausting as well but mm. but I love it but just going back on your question um I I actually you know the other the Elgar and the and the Vaughan Williams you probably know what I'm gonna say I'm, I'm gonna say <laughs> so yeah, I, I I love many old recordings but I try very hard not to not to be too influenced by yeah. them and and I, I do even though it's easy to say of course you know you, you're inspired by great players of course of the past but what I do love about the Lark ending is that it's written in such a way you can just be free with it you can really improvise and every violinist can I think sound totally different from the other and it's just simply the way it's written with all those no bar lines and taking flight, yeah. it's it's feels like it's improvised, doesn't it? It's yeah. just kind of beautiful, beautiful freedom. Absolutely, yeah. and this is, yeah. So the last on the disc is the original Lark Ascending, the version for just violin and piano. Which until doing the research for this, I hadn't realised that it was originally written for piano and violin. We well, I mean, that, that's I, I also was in the same boat, um, you know, and, until. Well, when I started learning the piece, it was I, I thought it was the orchestral version back in when I was in 2005, I think it yeah. was. I thought it was just simply orchestra and violin, and then it was a wonderful surprise to see the score, and it was like, oh, actually. Yeah. What yeah. was it that made you want to pursue this version rather? I mean, you've recorded the, the orchestral version already, I think, haven't you? Mm. But was, was there something that made you think, yeah, I, I want to do this? Yes, definitely. Um, the piano is really different to the orchestra in, in its texture so I hope people will come to this recording with, with fresh ears and be surprised by how different it sounds. The piano by nature it can't sustain of course so the the orchestral version is this lovely bed of sound which I adore and I, it's very poignant but I feel the piano version is equally poignant in a different way because it's more like bells of, of sounds a very it's not linear, it's like, um, it's more horizontal. It's just this sort of beautiful striking of the chords. And I love he hearing the um, pianist uh, interpret this this piece. Uh, Martin, um, it was a joyous play with Martin Roscoe. Did, did you guys have any arguments over the interpretation 
of, of any of the pieces? <laughs> um, yes, of course. We, but friendly, <laughs> friendly. Yes, that's healthy, surely. I mean. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. It's nice. I feel like I can say anything. And, and likewise, he also, you know, I, it, it's a completely equal partnership. And um, uh, it's it's great fun as well. Um, and I've, got, I've got great respect for him, of course, um, him having having such a incredible record of performances over so long. So it's it's a joy. And I hope people might might just be interested in the piano in this recording and then the violin and piano version of the, of the lark. It's just very, it's very different, but, but very poignant, I think. We've got some quick fire questions for you. Super quick round. Um, I'm ready. Are you ready? Okay. I think so. Okay, so you've performed in cities all over the world. What's the worst hotel you've ever had to stay in? (laughs) Oh, now that's quite difficult. I think there's one in Birmingham, which I I can't remember the name of, and it it just wasn't fun for me. Yeah, sorry, it's not quick fire enough. No, that's fine. Fine, that's fine. Birmingham. 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 (laughs) No. I feel forever associated with Birmingham. <laughs> uh, what's the most inspiring conductor you've worked with to date? It's a tough, tough to say. My English is coming through. Yeah. But Anu Tali, I think, is great. Is great. She's very exciting. I think great conductor. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Who is the grumpiest conductor? Who's the grumpiest conductor I've ever performed with? You don't wow, have to say if you don't want to. No, I can think of too many, I'm afraid. Uh, that's, that's enough of an answer. That, that, that's all I wanted. I love that. Okay, you grew up in Stockport in the northwest of England. Which British actress was born in Stockport in 1984? Oh, that's difficult. God, I should know that. In 1984? 1984. I'm afraid I don't know. That's Claire Foy, the Queen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, I'm very proud to be from Stockport. She's one of you. <laughs> uh, oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> your violin <laughs> is a 1708 Matteo Goffrilla. I don't know if I've said that correct, correctly. Goffrilla? Perfectly. <laughs> Wonderful. Absolutely nailed it. Made in Venice. Does it have a nickname? And if not, what would you call it? Well, I... I have to say, it's a bit boring. I call it Matteo. <laughs> no, that makes sense. That does make sense. Okay, fair enough. Or, or the Goff. The Goff. does sometimes on, on Thursday, Fridays. <laughs> yeah, the Goff. The okay, great, brilliant. This is hard. I, you don't have to answer it. But what's your favourite violin concerto? It's a bit of a nebulous, annoying question. But Wow, that's you know, tough. You never know. Yeah, uh, well, it's always, I'm sure you've had this answer before, it's always the concerto you're playing at this uh, time. Okay, what a cop-out. But, <laughs> uh, but I will, I will answer, because I, I think, um, I think for me, Elgar, it's got to be the Elgar. Oh, like, brilliant. Concerto. That's great news, because that's yeah. my favourite. What is your, <laughs> do you have a least favourite, by any chance? Well, err. <laughs> a bit, bit tricky as well. Um, I, that is, that is tricky. I mean, 
I think sometimes I have to be in the mood for the piece I'm playing. Sometimes I, I feel that the Bruch I love, I think it's a great piece, but I have performed it now so many times that yeah. I think I need to give it a bit of a break. But yeah. that's not to say it's a brilliant concerto, which it absolutely is. I understand. Yeah. If you had to self-isolate with one composer, dead or alive, who would it be? <laughs> um, I think it would be... My goodness. I mean, I certainly, Beethoven would be at the bottom of my list. At the t- <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd love, love to have, you know, got a time machine and met him, but in isolation. Yeah, too um, much. Maybe, maybe, uh, how about Gershwin, you know, that, Ooh, that in isolation. good cool. shout. He would have been fun. He would have been <laughs> fun. Been, surely he would have been, yeah. <laughs> uh, can you name one Polish composer that we all have to listen to? Uh, yes. I would say um, Knapik, and that is spelled K-N-A-P-I-K, Elgeniusz Knapik. Um, I know it's uh, very out there because he's not really, he isn't played in, in Britain, but in case, in case you've got nothing to do and you would like to visit YouTube, uh, I am playing some of his music Brilliant. on there. Polish or British cuisine? Polish or British cuisine? Oh, don't make me choose. Don't make me choose. That's too difficult. Um, uh, I think I, I, I'm afraid I love Polish cuisine. It's, oh. it's, a, it's the pancakes that do it. Yeah. I'm afraid it's, it's the Polish pancakes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Finally, what is your favourite classical music podcast? Well, of course, yours. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I would not answer any other way, surely. Good, you passed that test. I don't. I didn't actually count up your scores there, but I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to say that you did excellently. Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't have a certificate, or no. I can. I can. I can like email. I can tweet you one if you like. Oh, that would be very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I could handle handle the result, but it was fun. The journey was fun. Yes, it Great. was. Lovely talking to you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks very much. It was great fun. Uh, nice to chat in lockdown. Absolutely. Well. Jen, July the 31st, recording coming out. That's and uh, we'll all be looking forward to listening to it when it does. Thank you so much. All right then, Jennifer. <laughs> Speak soon. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Looking ahead, a few tentative Al Fresco events have started popping up. We've already mentioned Hampstead Garden Opera's production of Savitri running from the 13th to the 22nd of August. But do also check out our friends at Waterbury Opera, who've announced a mini festival on the weekend of the 15th of August. There will be a performance of Mozart's Così Fan Tutte and Jonathan Dove's Song Cycle. Ariel, all taking place in Oxfordshire's Waterbury Gardens, a gorgeous venue for a gorgeous-sounding weekend. Glyndebourne are also running a series of outdoor operas and concerts, although they seem to be sold out. It looked quite overpriced anyway. But why not take your strawberry money and donate it instead to Tete Tete's 2020 Opera Festival? They've got a staggering array of excellent events, including operas entitled Moon Woman and The Fruit Bowl running every day from the 27th of July to the 20th of September. Some are online and some are, hopefully, at the Cockpit Theatre in Marlebone, London. 
There's a link to the festival guide in the description below where you can also donate. If you're Bristol-based, watch out for Sky Orchestra. It's described by organisers Luke, Jerem and Dan Jones as a visual audio installation made up Ooh. of seven hot air balloons, each with speakers attached. And the balloons take off at dawn and fly across the city, each playing a different element of a musical score, mm. thus creating an enormous audio landscape. The exact day of deployment hasn't yet been announced, just sometime this month, in quotation marks. But do check out the website for updates, which we've linked below. That sounds awesome. Also keep an eye on our Twitter feed for any other live events, plus our weekly Guess the Composer competition. You can follow us there and on Instagram at ClassicalPod. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. A big thank you to Obsidian Records for the Leonora de Este disc. Another thank you to Floor at Channel Records for allowing us to use that lovely clip of Rebecca Clark. And a final big thank you to Jennifer Pike for coming and having a chat to Timbo. Before we go, we just want to mention our summer special episode. We want book recommendations, summer reading. So if there's anything you've read that you thought is particularly inspiring, particularly if it's musical or a book on music, then send us a voice note talking about why you think it's so good and why you would recommend it to others at theclassicalmusicpod at gmail.com. Really looking forward to hearing from some people on that. Finally for today, just a moment to mark the passing of a film music titan, Ennio Morricone, who wrote countless wonderful scores, notably The Mission, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, just a, the kind of composer who makes people want to be composers. He'll be sadly missed. Give me all in my lamp, keep me I agree with Nick. I agree with Gordon. I agree with every single word. You must have a consensus. I don't know this reference. Let's talk about nuns, baby. Let's let's talk about nuns, baby. <laughs> that... I don't know why. I just think of nuns. Nuns being sexy. I don't. I don't know this. I don't think I know the song you're talking about. I tried looking it up. <laughs> <laughs> How did that? How go? Does it, can you just? Can you sing it to me quickly? Let's talk about nuns, baby. Okay, right. I'll give that. Let's talk about nuns, baby. There'll be no nunnery <laughs> punnery though. <laughs> Shall I do that again? <laughs> Shall we get? I'm gonna cut. Let's cut. <laughs> <laughs>